Hey, everyone. Before we get into today's interview, just wanted to drop a little reminder to stay up to date with all the latest episodes of On The Margin. You can subscribe to the BlockWorks Background YouTube. Just go up there, just click the little uh, subscribe button, or you can click the links at the top of this episode. It'll take you over to Apple, Spotify, whatever your preferred platform is. Just subscribe there. And if you could, leave a rating and review. Really appreciate it. All right, on with the show. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of On The Margin. Today, I'm joined, as always, by the magnificent Mr. Mark Fisco. Uh, Same magnificent yeah, too, too I missed last week, Mark. Too kind. And uh, I'll do the quick reveal. I I wanted to wear my green Oh, Mark, shirt. wait. Oh, sorry. Before we get to your reveal, I missed last week. I figured I owe you, and I have a reveal for you. This oh, my week, gosh. Actually, come on. on. For one second. Yeah. Come on. It's like those videos where you just pop in. Anyone under 80. Oh, <laughs> what do you think about that? I figured you would like this shirt. <laughs> I, I, I love that shirt. I, I love that shirt. I might even go anyone under 60, but, but anyone under 80 would, would be a great. That feels like a non-controversial. For those who are following along uh, only on, on uh, audio, I'm wearing a shirt that's a presidential slogan, but it says anyone under 80, 2024. So, beautiful. It's beautiful. So I was going to wear my green shirt. Uh, but my wife said I'm not allowed to wear the green shirt and the orange pants. So I got the orange pants. Mm. I put the green on with the socks with the Bitcoin bull because we are a desperate need of uh, the resumption of the bull market. And that would have been, I think, you know, green shirt and orange pants would have been perfect because you were there last week and I should be there right now drinking Guinness with all my friends. All my friends are in Ireland for the Notre Dame Navy game tomorrow. I have my fighting Irish belt on as well, but I can't believe it's football season. I mean, mm. it doesn't feel like football season when it's going to be 98 degrees here in Chapel Hill today. So it's hot. Oh my God. I was in Chicago crazy. yesterday. I forgot. Yeah, I lived in Chicago for, for nine years. I forget how humid it is in Chicago. This is my problem in New York, Mark. I mean, you have to, I have to walk most places. You know, you walk, subway, and in the summer here, it's 95 degrees, 100% humidity. But we got a bunch of stories this week, and we maybe we just uh, get right into it. So um, we can start with some of the macro. And what I wanted to get your take on was we had uh, PMI come through this week and is looking, I mean, the TLDR is that it's looking soft. So right? in, cool. in honor of, of, you know, my favorite movie, you know, Top Gun mm. Maverick, you know, it's, it's heading for the hard deck. It's mm. heading for the hard deck. So we've got, we're looking at services on the left and global manufacturing on the right. And just to, just to be clear for, for listeners who aren't following along, you know, this is the survey was 52.2 for services. What we actually got was 51. Uh, survey for global manufacturing was 49. We got 47. These aren't horrendous numbers, but they're not trending in the right direction well, well the, and, the manufacturing is horrendous right sub 50 mm. is a recession right mm. and in 47 you know you can see on this chart it doesn't go below you know 50 very often yeah and it doesn't go below 49 very often except in the you know global financial crisis it it crashed and if you went back to to 2001 2002 You'd see similar numbers, but it, the the manufacturing numbers are horrible. And it's funny, I was I was in Chicago giving a speech, um, basically about Chairman Powell, and you know, this the title of the speech was you know no landing zone. Did the Fed mm. pull off the miracle, uh, you know, soft landing or no landing, and. You know, it's interesting if you, if you just look at data and, and this is this is one of the charts I, I showed, you say, well, that that looks like a recession. I mean, we went way below 50 on the manufacturing. Uh, we went below 50 on services. And, and then we had this little ramp back up and everybody's like, oh, look, the, you know, the chairman Powell, he did it. And my, the, one of the points of my, my talk was, well, no. Someone else did it. There was another pilot, a drone pilot. So back to your, anyone under 80, we got all these old guys running it. And it's not them. It's the 26-year-old drone pilot. And it was the fiscal. We had a fiscal 
explosion. Yeah. 12 months ago. It was, I mean, Michael, I, I, I didn't even realize how big it was. We went from uh, a budget of half a trillion, which still a ridiculous number uh, of deficit to 1.7 trillion. We pumped 1.2 trillion extra dollars into the economy. When no On what time in- frame? On what time frame was that, Mark? Uh, the past year. Yeah. Jesus. And it's why no one was looking because everybody was focused on the, hey, he's raising rates, he's raising rates, he's raising rates. Well, and 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 what was interesting is he did the the kind of heading for the hard deck where he was pulling liquidity out of the system. We've talked about this in the, uh, yeah. maybe three weeks ago. And then he did the $300 billion kind of super injection around SVP. But he has gone back to pulling liquidity out. So net-net, he's not the savior. It's the fiscal. And no one's paying attention to that. So yep. the looking at what bond yields have done here, so the 10-year responded to the PMI, sold off. I didn't include this chart, but actually stocks rose. Just think about how funny our system is. You've got uh, collapsing uh, manufacturing PMI, which causes yields to sell off, which causes the stock market to go up. Feels a little backwards, but that's the state of affairs. On the right side of this, what we're looking at is the market-implied U.S. terminal rate. So that, after the um, the reversion post-SVB banking crisis, has been steadily creeping up again to just under 5.5%. So the latest is 5.47. So uh, you know, we're recording this a couple of hours before Jackson Hole, but Mark, we'd love to just get your updated thoughts on where rates are headed. Are we in this kind of higher for longer holding pattern? The market is pricing in um, basically, you know, one more fifty, uh, one more rate hike essentially by end of year, and then kind of moving into a holding pattern. Um, I mean, w- what do you see happening here? So, I think we're we're back to normal, but because we were in abnormal for so long, meaning ZERP, right. that people don't know how to, to listen to the chairman anymore. They don't know mm. what, what normal interest rates are. We're supposed to have positive interest rates. Right? That's how capitalism actually works, right? There's the promise of earning when you put your capital to work. And, and so the difference between five and a quarter, five and a half, 5.75, it's irrelevant. What, what had to happen and what did happen was we had to get out of ZERP, which was designed to save the bank's balance sheets. And we have to go back to a world where they can actually earn some money. And remember, the Fed only exists for the banks. It is a right. private corporation, not federal, no reserves. It is a private corporation owned by the banks and the families that own the banks. And its job is to maximize bank profits. So that's what they're doing. And the fact that everybody thinks that they control everything else is why people are missing this, this fiscal mess. And so the thing I was, I was totally I won't say I was wrong. I just didn't, I didn't see it because it's not like I said the opposite. It's just, I, I didn't say this, which was, if you looked at all the data coming into last year and we did, right? You know, PMIs were collapsing, services and manufacturing, yield curve was inverted. All these things were saying serious recession. And I said a couple weeks ago, I said, look, I was wrong. I mean, everywhere I go. Restaurants are full. Airports are full. I mean, O'Hare was a nightmare yesterday. I mean, it was crazy. People are spending. Well, how the hell are they still spending? Well, it's because the government handouts in the form of disability payments, unemployment payments, all these direct government stimulus programs. And turns out there's still 300-ish billion dollars left in the coffers from the handouts uh, from a couple of years ago. And credit card debt. I mean, credit card debt has gone absolutely. I think it hit a trillion dollars for the first time. I think I have that stat right. So um, I just totally missed the fiscal part that the government was going to spend their way into oblivion and not worry about the devaluation of the currency. 
which is why Larry Fink went on TV and said, you know, maybe you should own some Bitcoin. You should buy it from me, but you should own some Bitcoin to protect yourself against currency devaluation. Come on. He said that on television. I know. That was a pretty monumental moment. You know, you know who actually I've got to give credit to because she's been saying this for such a long time is Lynn Alden. And you can go back years ago and find these articles that she was writing on the transfer from monetary to fiscal. Just last month, she came on the podcast and was explicitly talking about this before these latest numbers got revealed. And yeah, I got to give credit to her for seeing this. And she was using the 1930s and 40s as an analog. And very similar thing happened back then. Which Um, is, you know, we have a 90-year cycle. And it's been going on for millennia. And it's because it takes three generations for people to forget. Yes. Yes. Right? And they repeat the same mistakes, but it takes three generations. It's why that, that saying, you know, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations actually exists in 42 languages. It translates that same phrase in 42 different languages. So it's the same phenomenon. My favorite. You know, father is in, in India. Father wrote a, uh, a grandfather wrote an elephant. Father rides a horse. Son rides a burrow. And, you know, that's the reality. So every 90 years, you get this, this super cycle. Now, what's interesting about it is 1840, depression, like the Great Depression, which became the second Great Depression after the Great Depression of the 30s. So the 20s, in theory, uh, could or should, you know, if you, if you believe that. Um, and we're not out of the woods yet. It's only 2023. So there's still time <clears throat> for people to mess up. Yeah. The, so Neil Howe was on the program a couple of weeks ago. Neil, obviously the author of The Fourth Turning and one of the pioneers of generational theory, wrote a book that came out just a couple of months ago called The Fourth Turning Is Here. And <laughs> one of the one of the observations that I've always liked about, so to your point about, you know, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves uh, in three generations, I mean, you can see that echoed across, there are other sayings, right? It's kind of the hard times make for good men, good yep. men make for, uh, shoot. Bad times, remember, bad, bad times. times bad times make for, right. So Hard men. Hard men yes. for good times. And that that observation of cycles across around a hundred year time period because it's generational forgetting, that is echoed sociologically with Neil's work. It's echoed yeah. financially with the work of, you know, many financial historians, but Ray Dalio and his sort of you know, mm-hmm. long term, short term debt cycle. And when you see these patterns, uh, you know, kind of people come to the same conclusions across multiple disciplines. It's very interesting. And, and in Neil's book, he actually wrote a whole chapter on connecting, uh, you know, the, the same observation that he'd made from the sociological perspective from other different disciplines. I think well. again, and, and it's your, your incredible, you know, uh, liberal arts training, that cross disciplinary uh, observation is so important. And mm. anyone kind of listening to us and we again we do appreciate that mm. if you if you take away nothing else from today which is you know maybe likely but but that is something you should take away which is when you see people reach similar conclusions using different disciplines and tactics and processes that's when you should you should pay attention right and and that doesn't happen very often, right? Because people are going their different ways. But when when cross disciplinary things happen, and and this is true of, of innovation, right? Great innovation happens at the confluence of of multiple disciplines coming together. Think about you know bioinformatics and and things like that, and gene gene discovery. I mean, uh, uh, drug discovery, uh, big data, and and science, and and healthcare. Um, same thing here is when when a sociologist can reach the same conclusion as an economist, can reach the same conclusion as an investment person, as an entrepreneur, all kind of saying, you know, it just doesn't feel right here. That's when you should really, really pay attention. I agree with that. I agree. Mark, let's talk a little bit about um, 
what's been going on in crypto the last week. So it has not been a good let's week. Not, let's, just, let's just talk macro today. <laughs> we can. So I just want to show, so this chart, I mean, I mean, I'll give it here. While I'm pulling this up, I'll, I'll give you my perspective here. So it looks like SpaceX actually sold off some of their crypto and or the, the Bitcoin that they held marked it down to a loss. Um, one of the observations that came out of another BlockWorks podcast, 1000X, that I thought was useful is what we're looking at here is the chart of Bitcoin, but also MicroStrategy and Coinbase. And if you look at these charts, uh, one over the other, this is uh, from on a one month time time frame. MicroStrat or, my, or uh, yeah, MicroStrategy and and Coinbase actually led the decline. And you could look at uh, MicroStrategy and Coinbase as a proxy for institutional demand in crypto, which I think is the correct. I think that's the kind of the correct way of looking at it. Um, overall, though, you know, I know whenever the market moves like this, people want to talk about it and they want an answer for it. I mean, this was always this is going to be a range bound time from, for, in my opinion, and there are yeah. going to be. There's two other things. Mm. So, a couple weeks ago, you know, I wore my my roller coaster socks. Yeah, that I break out every summer because. Summer is time for roller coasters. And the thing about roller coasters is there's a lot of ups and downs and ups and downs, but you end up in the exact same spot. Mm-hmm. And we're doing that, right? We have an yeah, up I agree. and then we have a down and then we have an up and then we have a down, but we end up in the same spot over. And, and summer doldrums are that. Now, what's interesting about this chart, and, and I love your point about leading. Someone asked me, you know, why are stocks going down? Right. Stocks are down 5% over the last month. It's a big move. Mm. And it seems like they go down most days. Well, it's because there aren't any humans involved. The humans are on vacation, right? I said, we, we joke at the Europeans, oh, they take August off. Ha ha, we, we work so hard. <laughs> Try to get a meeting with somebody this month. Pfft, yeah. Forget it. I mean, I, I, I was in Chicago yesterday. I tried to get meetings. Four people. I'm I'm gone. I'm out. And I don't begrudge them being out. Go on vacation. It's great. But but it is fine. So the machines take over and the machines are pushing everything down. They're pushing everything down. Now, I will agree with you that that the there was this exacerbation on the SpaceX, you know, news. And there was a, a sharp drop in, in BTC. Uh, but that's the nature of the beast. The thing that people yeah. forget about Bitcoin is it's not really liquid. It's not really deep because so much of the you know market cap is is holders or hodlers, however you want to pronounce it. And they're just not selling at any price. But the same coins churn over and over and over. And that's true of most things, right? You know, Microsoft, there's a whole bunch of people that never sell their Microsoft and there's, there's stuff that churns. You know, the index funds don't sell their Microsoft. And so when the free float is very small, you can get, this is a, this is, this is a chart, this, this orange and, and light blue lines. Those are machines. Okay. Mm. The blue, the dark blue lines, humans. That's a human reaction. That's fear. That's a human reaction to a, a new piece of information. The orange and the blue, like I said, the institutional demand, that had nothing to do with institutional demand. It has to do with machines, with Ken Griffin saying, everyone's on vacation. It's not Ken, it's Ken's massive team. And it's not even really a team, it's, it's robots. So it's the robots saying, okay, we pushed stocks up the first half of the year when no one thought they were going to go up and we made a ton of money because people were chasing. Now we're going to push down and we're going to seed the clouds and, and they're going to go down for a while, except for uh, NVIDIA in theory, right? Which, you know, said, well, we're going to have all this revenue this quarter and stock popped after hours. But then where did it end up at the end of the day yesterday? Hmm. It's interesting. Flat. It was up 8% at one point, ended up flat. Stock market crashed yesterday. If you would have said NVIDIA, actually people did say this two days ago, if NVIDIA, if NVIDIA beats you know, already raised expectations, the market's going to go crazy. Well, it did, but not up crazy. It went down crazy. 
and we'll see how it, it, it levels out today. But that's the machines. The mm. machines, I, I again, and, and if you look at volumes in the summer, they're really low. So none of this is really that 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 much information. Ultimately, Bitcoin, when the ETFs approved, that's when you know the cape, the bull gets his cape back. Mm. So Nvidia, you and I have been talking about quite a bit. The their earnings came out this week, as you mentioned. So the estimate for Q2 revenue was 11.04 billion. The big beat, 13.51 billion. Uh, that's big beat. Um, the adjusted earnings per share came in at two dollars and seventy cents versus an estimate of two dollars and seven cents. And they, you know, said that they they see uh, third quarter revenue uh, at sixteen billion. Uh, plus or minus two percent against what uh, Wall Street estimates, uh, geez, analysts were estimating, which is twelve and a half billion. So big beat on both revenue and profitability, and then they raised estimates uh, against what was already already a pretty aggressive estimate, and then they approved an additional twenty five billion dollar uh, share buyback. So it's basically everything that analysts want to see. And to your point, Mark, it's interesting that there was the initial run up, and then it didn't really. Trade higher, and I think because I'll tell you why. Why people found out how they did it. This oh. is this is not this is not new. This is what commodity tech companies have been doing forever. They help finance their customers' purchases to stuff the channel. <laughs> One of their customers got reported uh, midday yesterday. They took out a loan equal to their market cap in order to buy NVIDIA chips. Shockingly financed in part by NVIDIA. That is stuff in the channel. Cisco used to do this. And the run-up in Cisco looks so much like the run-up in, in NVIDIA. And again, most people weren't around doing this in 99, 2000. So they'd they don't have any perspective and they think this is this is some new thing and that no company has ever grown like this. Are you joking? This is this is a tale as old as time. You can go back to, to IBM in the 60s and they did the same thing. They would stuff the channel with big old boxes that they would finance. There was a guy, there's a multi-billionaire up in Richmond, Virginia. He helped them, right? He would help companies finance purchases they didn't need. Uh using seller financing. And what happened to Cisco in 2002? They reversed all of those gains because they had to write off a whole bunch of inventory that turns out nobody needed because they had stuffed the channel. So I believe this is going to end the same. And, you know, people are going to lose a lot of money. But, I, you know, someone asked me yesterday, you know, but but you're not short. I'm like, no, I'm not. I learned my lesson Back in 2000, uh, you know, trying to short companies like MicroStrategy and Cisco. And look, Julian Robertson shut down the largest hedge fund in the world at the time. So let that hang in the air for a second. It was a $20 billion hedge fund back when $20 billion was a lot of money. And he literally wrote a letter to clients saying, I don't understand. Companies that don't make money should not, and these guys do make a little bit of money, but this company sells at 44 times revenues, not 44 times earnings, but 44 times revenues. It's worse than Sun Microsystems, which was the poster child of the 2000 mania, was selling at 10 times revenues. And Scott McNally said, in order for you to make a decent return, at this price, I have to basically give you all of my revenue for the next 10 years, which would be really hard because I'd go to jail because I have to pay taxes and I have to pay my employees and I have to pay for my goods and services. So that's just not going to happen. And, and Sun Microsystems went down 98%, 98. And again, I'm not saying this is going to go down 98%, but it's going to go down a lot. I just can't tell you when. Remember, you know, we've talked about this too. MicroStrategy, you know, before it was a Bitcoin bank, was a tech consulting company. I know the word consulting gives you PTSD 
uh, Michael Duffy. <laughs> but they were a tech consulting company that kind of cooked the books a little bit. Oh, that's slander. No, he actually paid a big fine, admitted guilt to the FCC um, on this. The stock was the darling of the day traders. They used to, they used to use message boards instead of Twitter. And stock ran, you know, buried the shorts, ran from basically nothing to 100, carried the shorts out, shorts came back, ran to 200, carried the shorts out again, shorts came back, <laughs> all the way to $330, maybe $331, and then crashed to three. So the shorts were right, but it was only the last shorts that they got there. So, um, you know, we live in amazing times. We live in a gamified system where, uh, you know, things can stay high longer than you like, except where's AMC right now? Hmm. All time low, all time low. If they didn't do the 10 for one reverse split, it's a dollar and 41 cents. Mm. GameStop, almost back to where it was three years ago. So these things do end. And, you know, it's just this one is supported by not day traders, but the the uh, tyranny of the index fund that Michael Green and, and others talk about. That, you know, every two weeks, a bunch of money has to go in to the Fangman stocks because they are cap-weighted parts of, of the indices. And at least for the next seven years, no, how many years we got left? Six years. For six more years until the last of us baby boomers. My wife's the last year of the baby boom. Um, and she's 59. So until the, that that group stops turning 60, no, no, it's longer than that. It's 11, so she's 59, it's 12 years. In 12 years, all of us will be taking money out of the system. None of us will be putting money into the system because 71 and a half, you have to you know, start taking it out. And there's an echo boom that's big, but there's a bust in between. You know, Gen X, Gen Y are not big enough. Gen Z and Gen A are big, but they're young. And they don't have any money. And we're going to see what happens when there's a trillion dollars of outflow from these stocks instead of trillions of inflows. So it'd be interesting. Yeah. I So I didn't realize that about the stuff in the channel. What I... What I've always thought about NVIDIA is that nothing that goes up like this will not come down on the other side. And I think that what you and I said about, we we talked about this back when Chegg had its overreaction in one direction, but I think what we're seeing is what you and I have talked about, which is a drastic overreaction to AI in the short term, and which will eventually lead to a capitulation and some sort of admittance that we got way out ahead of our skis a couple of years of winter or maybe, maybe I'm scarred by crypto, but something like that. And then you will gradually see the implementation of AI in companies that make sense. One thing though, that I, I I still struggle to get a real handle on myself is, you know, what the business model is for AI and who benefits. And what I keep coming back to is, You can't ask logical, serious questions in a period of hyperbolic stock market, you know, pumping. Come on. Business models? Revenues? Well, actual use cases? You know what? We just did a a webinar on this, right? This mm. is a 70 year overnight success story. The term AI was coined in 1955. Okay, in the 1980s, we had an AI boom that was going to change the world. Okay, uh, Intel was going to change the world with their AI uh, implications on for chips. Stock market, I mean, stock went up tenfold from $12 to $120. And today, it's, I don't even know where it is, like 38 something like that. I mean, that's 20 years later. So the benefactor that I see very clearly for AI is big corporations, frankly. It's the Microsofts and the Googles and those sorts of companies because what it allows you to do, I think it's a little gross how much these 
corporate CEOs are salivate, openly salivating over the opportunity to trim 30% of headcount or whatever it is. But that's what's going <laughs> to happen, right? I mean, there yeah. a lot of knowledge worker email jobs are going to get replaced yeah. permanently by AI, yeah. I think. And that's just, yeah, I think that's what's going to happen. So I, it's, it's ironic that I think the VCs are cheering for the Silicon Valley VCs rather cheering for this so loudly when I don't really see this being wildly helpful for them. I think it's ultimately going to be really helpful to the incumbents that they're trying to challenge with new startups. Um, but I, but I could be totally wrong about that. I'm not some kind of AI analyst and yeah, look, it's, it's, it's like every computing wave, yeah. there will be real innovation There'll be early adoption. There'll be a mania. There'll be a collapse. There'll be a trough of disillusionment. And that trough of disillusionment will leave companies like this, I don't know, down 50, 60, 70, 80%. Yeah. It's coming. Can't tell you when. It's coming. So I want to get to two more big stories here, which, which is one, Something that we've been talking about for a while, but Mark, I just cannot get my my head around, and I'm wondering if you could uh, enlighten me. And then the other one, I, I, I which is housing, and the other thing that I want to talk to you about is the China slowdown, which I feel like is very real and yep. has big implications. So yep. let me go over to some of these slides. Uh, I'm going to skip through some of this, but let me. I've so this is what we're looking at here is the monthly mortgage payment. Um, using the median existing home price uh, and assuming a 20% down payment and a 30-year mortgage rate. So these are sort of hypothetical numbers, but ones that are probably directionally correct. And you can see this going all the way back to about 2000, right? So 2000 to two, where we are today, 2023. So in the this number bottomed in around two, 2012, right? Post-housing crisis, or when the when this monthly number was five hundred and seventy seven dollars in twenty 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 one it was a much more affordable nine hundred and seventy seven dollars still almost a doubling, but their economy was also you know humming along during that time bull market you know wages mm-hmm. going up stock prices going up et cetera mm-hmm. We are now with the recent run up in mortgages up to two thousand three hundred and twenty two dollars which is mm-hmm. about four times what it was back in twenty twelve and I think the other thing that's important to point out here is the rate of change that this happened in. I mean, the, yeah. the move from 2012 to 2020, that was about eight years and it was a double. And it, it, just, it just moved very quickly. So what you would expect to see, I think, is I, I think you would expect to see, and this is all interest, by the way, <laughs> the, yeah. the principal first payment is, is down from what it was, but the, yeah. the interest is soaring. So what you would expect to see is a slowdown, I think. And this is just a, this is the 30 year mortgage fixed rate, according to bankrate.com. So again, going all the way back to 2000, where mortgage rates were at uh, about 8%, they went all the way this downtrend into bottoming at 3%, under 3% in 2020. We we're mm-hmm. back to where we were in 2000 at around 8%. Now, last month in July, we actually had new one family houses sold. I mean, look at the, these are, we're up. The, the amount of new homes that are being sold is continuing this steady uptrend. But we do have um, mortgage applications, which are a more forward looking indicator, finally dropping to the lowest in 95, but since uh, 1995. But Mark, help me, help me make sense of this because I, I get that we're on 30 year fixed rate mortgages. People are locked into their homes, et cetera. But people still have to move, right? And the prices are set on the margin. So yeah. how how have it's been a oh like a full year at this point? How have home prices just not responded? And rents are the same thing. Rents continue to climb. Well, rents are definitely climbing, I think, because of, of this problem. Um, housing prices are are falling and they're down in just about every market. I had this mm. great series of charts yesterday. The um uh, what the hell's the name of the the group that does the the housing numbers? It just mm-hmm. went right out of my head. But um, national housing and, and some NHIB or whatever. So mm-hmm. the housing index is down, and then they also do an affordability index. And and mm-hmm. this you know this was a little 
cheesy, but they they did uh, a thermometer, like green to red. The whole country was red. I mean, affordability has has fallen off a cliff, and, and you and that's what this this applications purchase applications drop is telling you, right? Is if you're in a home, great, you can you can afford it because we had that that 13 year period of stupid policy where we took interest rates to zero, even though we didn't need it. And we basically just stuffed people into homes. Okay, fine. But then you do the fastest rate increase in history, which, okay, you know, Powell can claim a lot of firsts in history. This is the fastest rate increase in history. And we're right back to where we were 20 years ago. The difference is housing prices aren't the same as they were 20 years ago. So that's that's your point on the chart. Now, the only problem I have with your, your first chart is it's a terrible chart crime, right? 20-year mm-hmm. charts have to be logarithmic scale. They can't be linear scale. So that, that rise looks much worse than it is because mm-hmm. it's just a double. You know, 1,000 to 2,000 is a double, the same as, you know, 600 to 1,000. Well, I guess 600 to 50, only 50%. But um, the the issue I have is, Yes, this is this is a horrible trend, and it's and it's bad for the average American in particular. And that was probably the point, the biggest point of my talk yesterday was there was this great cartoon, and it showed a giant plane, uh, like a double decker jumbo seven forty seven, and the top was the elite, and the middle of the plane was the wealthy, and then hanging on to the landing gear was everybody else. Mm-hmm. And it said, your, your view of the landing depends on where you're sitting. And so the people land, sitting on the landing gear, they're going to get squashed. The people at the bottom of the plane, it's going to be a little bouncy. But the people at the top of the plane drinking champagne, they are really, they love this guy. He is mm-hmm. their hero because stocks have, have rebounded. You know, NVIDIA is up a lot. They love that because that's what they own. The average person doesn't own any stocks. This is the crazy part. 49% of people in this country don't own stocks. Mm -hmm. That's just a crazy stat. What they own is houses. And houses are falling. And and, and why are rents sticky? Well, to your point, people who have to move, which is not as much as there used to be because of remote work, you know, there aren't as many people being forced to move. Mm. But if you do have to move, right? Let's say you finish school and you got to move somewhere or... You know, your company transfers you or, or whatever it is, and you have to move. That's who's who's making these these home purchases. So they're not zero. Um, you know, Apple's relocating their second headquarters here to Raleigh. So every house that goes on the market here is getting bought at, at crazy prices because there's 4,000 people being forced to move here. Um so, I mean, I guess they'll, I guess they'll, they'll hire some local people, but it's a whole bunch of people moving in. And so I guess the, the part that I'm, I'm really struggling with, with housing is if, if your goal is to reverse, and now I'm going to get Sinister Saturday, right? If the goal is to reverse this long, this decades long trend of home ownership and get people to own nothing, right? You won't own a house. You'll rent. Mm-hmm. And there was an article yesterday. Um, they call them guppies. There's something about, um, there's a term for it where people, young people have given up hope of ever ho- owning a home. They're just like, oh, I'm, yeah. I'm going to rent forever. Anecdotally can completely confirm that people feel like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's that's a weird dynamic because, you know, right after the war, home ownership, you were un-American if you didn't want to own a home. I know. Right? I mean, literally, you were un-American. And that has been everything from tax law, right? I can deduct my mortgage interest, but not my interest for student loans, not my interest for credit cards, not my interest for a loan I make to you. That, why? Mm-hmm. Home ownership. It's all about home ownership, right? And and so we we rigged the system to encourage home ownership. Why? Well, because again, if you have all these entitlements that you promise people, and and you know at some point 
you may not be able to honor them. Well, what do you got to do? You got to have some way for people to, to have, have wealth. Well, let's pump up the value of, of their asset. And if their biggest asset is their house and we can inflate that over time. So it's, it's like the anti currency devaluation houses and stocks actually look like they're doing well, as long as you don't price them in anything that matters. Like one of my favorite charts is stocks look like they're at all time highs, give or take, but that's priced in dollars. You price them in gold. They're the same price as 1997. They look like that chart you showed of, of mortgage applications. Yeah. Because the money just keeps getting devalued, which in theory makes my house price on Zillow look better. But we've talked about this before. My house doesn't grow. It doesn't get more efficient. It actually wears out. Houses are a, a wasting asset. They're, mm. they're not a growth asset. The money gets worse. The I forgot one chart that I wanted to show you here. One thing that I wanted to show you here as well doesn't even need to be a chart. But Zillow announced this week that they're launching home loans to help more people get a home with a new down payment option of how much do you think, Mark? Zero. One percent. One percent. One percent down payment on your home, which is because you know, Michael. If four to one leverage is good, 80% mortgage, 99% leverage is really good. Better, baby. Keep the party and, going. And, and look, you know, if housing prices are going to fall 1% a year, they can take everybody's equity every year and put that on their bottom line when they foreclose mm. on the house. See, this is, this, this is, this is like crypto lending, right? When my, I told you the story where my brother called me and said, they stole my crypto. I'm like, what are you talking about? No, you're the idiot that levered up 100X. And then someone said to me, Mark, you don't understand. That's their business model. They lend people 100 to 1 with the intent of seizing the collateral. Like, oh my God, that is theft. So if you loan people 99% for 1% down, and then you get to foreclosed on the asset, if you intended to foreclose, is that theft? I don't know. Mm. Seems like it. Yeah, I just it depends if Zillow really wants to own that many houses. But I think my, my sense is that banks, you know, when they foreclose on the homes, not they don't want to be homeowners, right? They're not trying to do that. But maybe Zillow has other plans. I yeah. don't know. Maybe, um, no, I mean, the banks just sold them all to Blackstone. Yeah. So they just, you're right. They don't want to own them, but they just want they just want the fees. But again, I, I'm not accusing Zillow of being like the crypto yeah. lenders who literally were stealing, but it's a weird 99% loans. Has that ever worked out? Name a time in history where putting a so. hundred times leverage on an asset was a good idea. It's just yeah. never been a good idea. Look at Fannie and for phony and fraudy, as I like to call it, you know, all those FHA loans at 3%. And look, if the market's going straight up, it's awesome, baby. It's awesome, right? <laughs> if the price goes up 10% and you have a 99% loan, you make 10X on your Not bad. Not bad. Not shabby. And now you don't have very much, but, but it goes from not much to a little and from a little to a medium. But all it takes is one little downturn and you are wiped. And... I don't know. I, this is where I get really confused, honestly. Mm -hmm. we, we can talk about all these scenarios that are really bad, right? People watching their mortgage, myself, right? My mortgage went up double because I, 10 years ago, did a variable rate mortgage that I don't even remember doing, but I did it. I'm not, I'm not accusing anybody. Of, I'm just right. saying I don't remember even doing that. And 10 years later, my mortgage goes from 3% to 8%. I mean, that's a horrible feeling. Now, you know, touch wood, thankfully, I was able to just, I paid, paid off half of it and got the rate back down or the payment back down to, actually, they didn't change the payment. It's just, I was paying, paying more principal. But it's, it's a crazy thing if you think about the average person who doesn't have 
$500 in savings, if your mortgage payment goes up $1,000 a month, what do you do? Well, you can't move because you can't afford a new house. So you move and you rent. And that's why rentals are. And I, I look, I'm shocked at how many rental units are going up here in Chapel Hill. I mean, I'm like, who's going to live in all these? But they are slowly filling up. And I think it's the people who they've just given up on, on home ownership. Yeah, search for me. And the next one is cars, right? I, I, this is crazy to me. There are 14 cities in the country that signed on to this thing to make personal ownership of cars illegal by 2030. Mm. Are, are you joking? And I mean, exactly. They're, they're trying to convert into these, what do they call them, 15 minute cities where it's all walking public transportation. You're not allowed to own a car. Um, a couple of them, this is crazy. A couple of them said, you're not allowed to eat meat in these cities. Like what the hell does that have to do with anything? But yeah, you know what, actually, if you, uh, I'm not a, I don't know how I feel about this, but there, Balaji has this idea of a, a network state and what you're describing there sounds a little like that. It's these smaller communities with an express set of preferences. I think he actually led with a, the example of a health food one. So no, you know, preservatives or seed oils or whatever it is in this city. Just a, mm-hmm. just a belief. This, we're going to build a city around this, this concept. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you, All right, I'll look at I that. I could see I mean, that actually. Well, I, a good guy. I mean, yeah, smart guy. Yeah. I'll, I'll read about that. Mark, I want to make sure that we get to China. So mm-hmm. I've got a slide here and I've also got some statistics to run by you, but we talked about this with, um, with Michael Cow and Nick Glinsman earlier this week. So I'm not sure if you can. Oh, there we go. Yeah, this was a great dashboard from Bloomberg calling it China <laughs> dashboard of disappointment. disappointment. Yeah, propaganda is so good in America. Alliteration so like that. Good at propaganda. I know. So we've got industrial production here, property investment, retail sales, and fixed asset investment. If you're following along on on video, I will just tell you every single one of these charts is down and to the right. Slightly different curve on some of these, but it's all the same story down yeah. and to the right. Yeah. And on top of that, some of the other statistics that I've got here for you are exports are down or they fell 14.5% year on year in July. China is now officially in deflation, which is pretty interesting. Youth employment, un- youth unemployment is at a record high, around 20% mark. Youth unemployment around 20%. Just think about that. Credit yeah, growth has fallen. ours, but we don't mm. count it the way they count people uh, in college as unemployed. We don't, which is ridiculous. People in college are unemployed. They just are. Um, but we don't, we don't count. So I, I get that. Look, I'm not defending mm. China's problems. They're real. And these, these charts make it, it, it acutely, uh, make you acutely aware of the issue. The question someone asked me the other day is, is this a controlled demolition? I thought that was such a good question because everything China does is controlled, right? It's planned. Mm. And, and, and I think the answer is yes, it's a controlled demolition. And it's she unwinding the, the left side of these charts, which is the straight up, uh, you know, corrupt period post WTO, where the previous administration basically enriched the party at the expense of everybody else, and and this is this is a systematic dismantling of that. Now the question is, is that is that a good idea? Right? Do you really want to dismantle your property sector and your manufacturing sector and um? But here's the thing. If you've been to Beijing lately, you can actually see the sky. Ten years ago, five years ago, you go to Beijing, it was disgusting. I mean, it was truly disgusting. You could not see anything, literally. Couldn't see the sky, couldn't see buildings. I mean, it was like being in a cloud bank. Um, Now you go, you see the sky. So pollution, 
it's not completely gone, but it's, it's pretty getting good. Better. Yeah. It's getting better. Um, you, you look at, at the, uh, you, know, you go to Shanghai and it's vibrant. I mean, it's buzzing again. And it's like, well, wait a second. How can that be if, if the property market's collapsed? Well, the, the ghost property market is gone, right? You can't just, you know, buy all these apartments from your friend and, and have them pump up the price and then, and then sell them to another friend uh, and then sell them to an SOE. We actually have to have, have people living in these apartments and using them. So they're, you know, people walking the streets of, of Shanghai. Mm. 44 million people, by the way. That, that's the crazy thing. A city of 44 million people. Just, just hard to comprehend. Yeah. I will say, even to someone living in New York, I went to Shanghai five years ago, five, maybe six years ago. And there's a famous building there. I think it's called the Can Opener Building. It looks like yes. a can yeah, opener. Yeah. And, yep. and went up there and, you know, you look out and I've never seen something like this, like something a sci-fi novel. It's just as far as the eye can see a city in all directions, 360 yeah. degrees. It's nuts. But well, one thing and that's that 126 just, stories, by the way. Yeah. I mean, yeah. One of the tallest buildings in the world. But the, the difference in economic conditions. So despite the long term, like let's leave the long term of China out of it right now, they're just in a very different position than the United States and other G7 countries seem to be in. Actually, one chart that I thought was really interesting that I got to give a shout out to urban cowboy, uh, Michael Cow, who was on the program this week. He had a great observation about the twos and tens of the US versus other countries. So mm-hmm. take a look at this. Let's see if I can share this on my screen. But uh, if you have to squint here, what you're looking at is, is uh, this is a, a new feature on Coifin. You can chart the spread of, on the twos and tens between different countries. And he's got China, which is this orange line. Uh, he's got Italy, Germany, Japan, and then the United States. And you can actually see that it's a positive, so a non-inverted yield curve for most for Italy, Japan, China, and then down low. So we've got Germany down there with us, but the US, uh, twos and tens, even after the this rise in long-term rates, which has uninverted a little bit, some of the yield curve still inverted. But look at the difference there in between yep. These two, these spreads. So you've got the US twos and tens spread clocking in at negative uh, 0.74%. And Japan, Italy, China, positive anywhere from 0.6 to 0.45%. Seems like that's a pretty interesting discrepancy, right? Incredible, like, right? And yeah. because a positive spread is a positive indicator for future economic activity. Right. Negative spread is not. And you know what what I think is is so interesting about this US I guess you have to call it a recovery because I will argue that we had a recession in 22. It was just a very shallow recession just like 2001, you know, sub 1% like 0.9% growth for the year, two negative quarters. And you say, you know, NBER doesn't want to call it a recession because of, of the employment numbers, which I think are just cooked, but fine. Yet you look at a place like China with all the negative stuff like industrial production and, and fixed asset investment, they continue to have this positively sloped yield curve and positive GDP growth. Their GDP growth kicking the crap out of US GDP growth. Mm. Well, why is that? Oh, they cook the books. Well, we all cook the books. But the reality is, no, it's that China is still growing. It is still positive, has, has positive momentum, and, and they have a plan, right? They are changing how they survive, whereas, you know, for 30 years, they were the manufacturing hub of the world, just mm-hmm. like America was after World War I. People... Again, they just don't remember this, that we became the manufacturing hub for the world, and we had these high-growth cities. We had all the pollution, 
That, that even in, that even went past World War II. That went into the 60s and 70s. Look at pictures of L.A., downtown L.A. in 1970. It was not pretty. And but, you know, back in in the 20s and 30s, you know, John D. Rockefeller was tonning it. And, you know, he was pouring bad stuff in the rivers and people were growing these things on their neck and dying all over the place. But we didn't have Environmental Protection Agency and we didn't have the Internet. So you can see pictures of this. Um, so China is, Can I just interject one funny thing yeah, about John D. Rockefeller there. So yeah. John D. Rockefeller, founder of standard oil, richest guy in probably United States history, inflation adjusted, history. all this stuff. He built his empire on oil, standard oil, right? Most people would probably assume that was the oil to feed cars, Correct. but it wasn't, it wasn't. It was kerosene oil. Kerosene the oil. whole thing on kerosene oil and the crude oil that he, you know, the refining process of oil he got when you get crude, dump that in the river for years. For years, yes. he just dumped no, it. No, and, and that's, it. that's one of my favorite stories, Michael, is, is he dumped the effluent, right? So he took crude, right. made kerosene. Everything else went down the river and the river would catch on fire. And he's like, that's interesting. How does the water catch on fire? I don't understand that. <laughs> and so then um, Henry Ford came up with this idea to build a, a car and he was going to use grain alcohol as the power for the combustion engine. And John D. Rockefeller was like, Hank, dude, I got this stuff that I'm just throwing away. It lights on fire so we could probably use it. Well, it turns out it was called gasoline. And so that's why cars run on gasoline. And then I said, I, you, you've heard me talk about this. I love this part, which is at the time, the largest car company in America was the American Electric Vehicle Corp. Right? Mm. We had electric cars in America in 1903 to 1906. And Henry Ford and John D. Rockefeller came along and said, nope, we're putting you out of business and we're going to run on, uh, uh, internal combustion and any technology around electric, we're just going to buy it and shelve it. So for a hundred years, literally, we could have had electric cars, but these guys were too powerful and and too rich, and it was all because you know the Cuyahoga River used to catch on fire. Yeah, there's some great other the William Randolph Hearst uh, paper magnet actually went to my high school, William Randolph Hearst. And he discovered at one point that hemp, which is related to marijuana, Mm -hmm. was potentially going to be a competitor. And he ran these smear campaigns against it. If you remember, I don't know if this was exactly him, but the reefer madness skits of, which by the way, how, I mean, funny in retrospect, definitely, you know, there was some straight up lying going on in there. No one smokes marijuana and then tries to kill people. I mean, that is just, come on. Come on. No, legitimate risks, but come legitimate? on. I, no, but, but, but look, that is, and, and this is a topic for another day, but that is what media has done for millennia, mm-hmm. right? That, that's been the purpose of media was to foment your view and to protect your domain, your, your dominion. And so why does the U.S. put out propaganda on how bad it is in China? Because that, that, that serves our interests. Why did the Nazis put out propaganda about, you know, the countries they were fighting against? That, that's, what, that's what propaganda is. Reefer Madness was propaganda, right? Mm-hmm. Think about the things that used to play – during the Vietnam War about Southeast Asians. They weren't exactly complimentary, shall we say. Yeah. Uh, you go to the movie theater and you see the little clip or or, or in, even during World War II, go all the way back. So that that process is real. Well let's take let's take seed oils, right? Why does everybody consume so much seed oil? Because the company that makes seed oils sponsored a study when the president had a heart attack and they wanted to show that saturated fat killed people. Okay. They did the study, this global study, and turned out there was no correlation. 
between how much fat you ate and heart disease. So what did they do? They just threw out the nine countries where that were off the chart and they drew a line and said, see, we proved it. And that study then allowed margarine to become the thing. And then seed oils are now in 92% of our food products. And people are shocked, shocked, I tell you, Michael, that obesity and other ailments, chronic ailments. Um, do you know PT, PT Mangan, the guy mm-hmm. on Twitter? He's a, mm-hmm. a fitness guy. I, I love the guy. He's, I, I love him because he's, he's a couple years older than me and he's always posting pictures of him in a tank top. You know, he's all ripped and, <laughs> and I just love it. But, um, and he posted a picture yesterday that I thought was, was unbelievable. They did a study, um, of insulin resistance. Mm. Right. So it's basically how often does your body have to produce insulin to, to fight all the bad stuff, the inflammation in, in your body? And there are three groups, low, medium, and high. The low group, right, which are basically people who eat right, exercise, don't eat a lot of seed oils, etc. Zero, zero incidents of heart disease, cancer. I mean, and this is, this is like this is like real data, and it's like wait a second, that that one thing, and it has to do with sugar intake and all and all this. But it, it was just it was just wild that if you look at you know sugar intake and seed oil intake from the fifties to today, it's a straight up line. And if you look at diabetes and heart disease and coronary artery disease. Um, it's it's amazing thing. We allow way too much crap in our food in the U.S. I will I will agree with you there. And well, I'll, I'll long- tell you, we'll we'll leave it on this. I I, I was at uh, Starbucks yesterday on the way. Tuesday, you know, I, again PTSD for you, but you know, I had to get up early, take the Odark Thirty flight, get a little caffeine. So I'm I'm picking up my my you know large black coffee from Starbucks, and a venti frappuccino with whipped cream and caramel drizzle the greatest magic trick of all time uh, is starbucks convincing an entire generation that a 1400 calorie milkshake is coffee you know what you know what the funny thing coffee. though about who's it's howard schultz is the founder yeah. Yeah. He, so the inspiration was how Italian people drink coffee. I experienced, I was in Paris last month for mm-hmm. ECC. You know, you get up there, there's a million little cafes. They pour you the little espresso, Americano, whatever. You're supposed to sip it. It's much smaller. It's about a quarter of the size yep. of the portions that you get over in the U.S. And that's what he wanted to bring over to the U.S. But you know what Americans didn't want? That. You yeah. know what they did want? <laughs> those milkshakes mark it's the this is what i you know for better or worse this is what and this is also you know i'm i'll be a defender of media here because i do believe in it the the, but what are you supposed to do if what you got to give people what they want also i mean you know you get to stand on your high horse say people should have different tastes than they have it's tough it's a it's a hard okay okay okay. that's interesting you got to be people okay but here's the thing and I shouldn't say this, but the woman who grabbed that 1400 calorie milkshake mm. weighed more than me by a meaningful amount and was not five, six. Okay. So very obese. Okay. Mm. Grab, grab that milkshake. And you say, we got to give people what they want. Okay. But then if that person does that to themselves, because they got what they want, should they be allowed to get free medical care? The U.S. system says yes. Kind of, right? I, I, I understand what the system says. Yeah. But that's an interesting, it's an interesting question for me, right? Which is if it's kind of like spenders and savers, right? Yeah, yeah. In this country, we punish intelligent, prudent savers at the expense of profligate spenders. Yeah. Right? My, I, we bail out you. banks 
at the expense of the prudent depositors. And Ma, right, who had a fixed income for 13 years, got paid zero. Yeah. So that, you know, the John D. Rockefellers of the world uh, could buy another home on a beach and get, you know, subsidized insurance for building in a floodplain. I don't know. I I understand why it happens because he who has gold makes the rules, but I'm not sure it's right. I don't know if it's right either. I will say every system has its trade-offs. You do not get the good without the bad. There are plenty of other healthcare systems, European healthcare systems, which prioritize preventative medicine. Americans don't want that. They do not like being told what to do at all. I know. And and there are so many pros to that, right? There are so many good things that come along with that a negative side of that uh a negative side of that is is this is this crap americans being yeah, like, here's Don't the weird me. thing here's the weird thing if you're a bad driver get in accidents all the time do you pay more for your insurance yeah you do turns out you, you do. do i you know do. you, you, you draw know? the line somewhere right i i mean and, i think you, really, as a smoker really weird, right as a smoker you pay it's, more for your insurance right i think you do yeah as yeah, yeah. and and yeah but there but but you know, we've we've decided that oh it's it's politically incorrect, you know, to fat shame people or whatever. And again, I'm not again probably going to get you know barred from the channel for talking about this, but I don't, I don't, I just don't think people's decisions should be free of consequences. I think that's yeah, I think that's a fair take. I think that's a fair take. All right, Mark, we got to wrap it here. Um, as always, best hour of my week. Missed you last week and uh, be back here sometime next well, week. Well, you know, this Ireland thing, it's its a big draw. So The Ireland, the Irish. Yeah. Well, good luck to your friends uh, who are drinking Guinnesses tonight. Um, I know. Cheers, well. everybody. Mark. Go Irish. Have a good right. one. Have Cheers, a good, good weekend. <laughs>